Star witness and government mole Fidel Marquez takes the stand in the ComEd 4 trial. He, he suggested that I have a write-up for each of uh, Jay's subcontractors and have them write up what they do. I'm like, I don't know what they do. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market, including how local home price growth tops the national rate for the first time in many years. So once again, our home price is up 4.8% in January compared to the nation being up 3.8%. Our strength is really, in that case, is really sort of because other cities have gone so weak. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, March 30th. Your business isn't an afterthought, so why would you settle for a bank that treats you like one? At Wintrust, small business clients are matched with a personal relationship manager who offers customized solutions and prioritizes their needs. And that personal touch works. Last year, Wintrust lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making them the number one SBA lender in the state. Start expecting more from your bank. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis Rodkin. Hi, Amy Guth. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So as usual, plenty of things to talk about. One house in particular, the second I saw this headline, I was like, oh man, I cannot wait to hear the Rodkin story on this one. Okay, let us start by talking about how Chicago home price growth has topped the national rate for the first time in quite a while. In a very long time, yeah. So you might remember that we talked month after month after month for a couple of years prior to the COVID housing boom. Every month when the Case-Shiller Index came out, we compare to the 20 major cities that the index follows, but also compare to the national price growth figure. And for about three years, we were running at half or less what the nation was doing. If the nation's home prices went up 6%, we went up 3 when the nation cooled a little bit and was going up one and a half percent, we were going up half a percentage point compared to the year before. And that was the story of our market for a long time. And then during the COVID boom, or really during the post-COVID cool off last year, I started telling you of those 20 cities, we're no longer 19th or 20th. We've been moving up, but really because others are moving down. And that's what we're seeing this month. It's March, but the data from the Case-Shiller Index came out for January because it's a national thing. They take a while to do. Home prices in in the Chicago area in January up 4.8% from a year before. That's compared to 3.8% nationwide. We were a full percentage point higher than the national figure. Parentheses, the previous month, the December data, uh, we were also above the national figure, but only by one-tenth of a percentage point. So it, uh, it wasn't really worth writing about. Just, let's see if there's a trend. And so the trend really rolled forward. So once again, our home price is up 4.8% in January compared to the nation being up 3.8%. Our strength is really, in that case, is really sort of because other cities have gone so weak 
there are several, we'll talk about them if you like, but there are several West Coast places that have started to deflate. Their numbers are down. Um, but the thing that I think is, is noteworthy here is not just that, oh, we used to be telling this story and now we're telling another story. But what we're really talking about is resilience in this market, in the Chicago home price market. Um, when we talk about home prices being up 4.8% in January, it's important to remember, you and I have talked about this before, that that's on top of price increases from the year before and from the year before that. The January 2023 figure, prices up 4.8%. The January 2022 figure, prices are up 12.5% from a year before. So we're talking about 4, 4.8% uh, price growth over 12.5, which is to say our buyers and sellers are still uh, reaching above last year's market, not enormously above 4.8% compared to 12.5. But in places like um, Portland, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, prices have not kept up. Prices have fallen. So they had these gigantic price increases, which we didn't have. They had much more boomy, bubbly, fizzy sort of price increases. And now, and now prices are down by comparison. So we've been more resilient. Why are we more resilient? You, let's just roll in the chorus to say this because I've, I've said it so many times, but our prices didn't go up as much, so they didn't have as far to fall. Um, and, and, you know, that's really good news about our Midwestern market, our Midwestern values, where we, we boomed, but we didn't boom insanely like a lot of those cities. And now while they're rolling back, we're not yet. It could be that months from now, I'm singing a different tune, but at the moment, it looks like we've had a pretty resilient market. And most people are saying that the housing market is likely to rise again into this spring because people have gotten used to the new higher interest rates. There's still new household formation. There are a lot of great houses coming on the market. So most people believe things will get better. Um, so it may be that, that our trough is that we went from 12% price growth down to four point, uh, sorry, we peaked at 13.1% price growth down to 4.8, which is a much better thing to see. It's not as much of a roller coaster as Phoenix, which this time last year was up 32.7% and now is flat. It's another highlight from that stability where we didn't have the same highs and lows as other markets. Right. And so here's yet another example of that, just kind of keeping with the middle that is paying off nicely for us. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually sort of pleased to be able to say that because for those years prior to COVID, I was saying, oh man, this stinks. If you're a homeowner, yeah. your equity is just not growing at the rate that other people's uh, people in other cities are seeing it happen. Um, and then during COVID, we saw you know we saw some really good home equity growth, but not to the point that we got out over our skis. And so yeah, I think stability, resilience, those are words that really apply here. And, and interesting to see what, especially those West Coast cities have done that we talked about pre-pandemic is, you know, suddenly this boom and we're, you know, we're seeing just what looked like the beginning of a bubble formation. And then, and then here we are. Those are the exact cities that we're talking about now. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting because we just talked about us as, as the Midwest and a lot of West Coast cities, the biggest price growth right now is on the East Coast, Miami, Atlanta, Charlotte, so you're seeing deflation or declining prices in on the West Coast. You're seeing us having, you know, pretty good price growth and then much larger price growth in Miami, Atlanta and Charlotte. Miami's up about 13 percent from a year ago, which is the kind of number that was sort of exciting a year ago. They're still on it. That's right. 
Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Any idea why the, the East Coast is kind of having this moment of growth? No, but if you'll give me a little time and uh, a, a plane ticket, I can go check out the Miami market. We'll have to go do some research. <laughs> I need to go research Miami. Cranes, this is very important journalism stuff that we must go do. And obviously, I Spring break need in- to interview Dennis <laughs> there to capture the full feeling of this. So we must immediately go to Miami. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Why don't we just go now? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that will go over just fine. (laughs) All right. Well, recently, both Chicago mayoral candidates came by the Cranes editorial board separately a day apart and faced lots of questions from lots of different folks. But in particular, uh, you had talked about your plans to talk with them both about the real estate transfer tax. Tell me about that. Yeah, I did. Um, It was a nice chance to actually speak to them face to face when I wrote about it earlier. I spoke to a, a Brandon Johnson aide, and I couldn't get an answer from the Vallis campaign. Still, we still knew that Johnson supports the uh, transfer tax increase, which I'll talk about in a second. He's been on it since before he was a, a candidate for mayor. As a Cook County commissioner, he was supporting it. So got a chance to ask both of them, as you said, separately, about the transfer tax question, which as people probably know, is this proposal called Bring Chicago Home. When you buy a property, you pay a transfer tax. What would happen in Chicago, not Cook County and not elsewhere, is that the buyer of a property at a million dollars or up, residential or commercial, would pay about three times the transfer tax they now pay. The difference on a million dollars is $19,000, and all of that would go to programs that fight homelessness. Again, that's only the the buyer of a property at a million dollars or more. Below a million dollars, your transfer tax rate doesn't change. And uh, for a seller, the transfer tax doesn't change. And I've been covering this because it's been moving through the city, or it moved through the city council, died under Mayor Lightfoot in November. So asked both of them. Uh, Brandon Johnson, who again has been supporting this, said that he absolutely will support it, that it will be a priority in his campaign. He believes, I asked him, you know, why should people, why should it apply only to people paying a million dollars or more? If homelessness is a plague that's affecting the whole city, wouldn't it be true that everybody should contribute to fighting this homelessness problem? And he said, first of all, we're trying to not put an additional burden on people in neighborhoods that are already pretty burdened, like his own, Austin, he said specifically. And also he said he felt that Chicagoans really understand the need to to pony up, to spend money, to fight this social plague. Paul Vallis said what I thought he would say, because I'd looked at other documents where he appeared to oppose the transfer tax, but he said flat out, no, he opposes it. But specifically because his platform is about holding the line on taxes new and new fees and that sort of thing. Really, property taxes being one of the greatest problems Chicago, the Chicago and, and Illinois have um, right now, the huge property tax burden. He wants to hold it. He wants to hold the line. So he said he would definitely oppose the transfer tax increase. But he did say that housing, housing people is important. Um, What he wants to do is really sort of open up the system to make more affordable, lots more affordable housing, buildable, doable. Um, He talks not only about housing for homeless people, but he talks about uh, people who are returning from incarceration, 
and often have a diff difficulty finding housing. He talked about uh, women and children from abusive situations who often, he said, are returned to the place where they were abused because there isn't somewhere to put them. There are not enough beds in the Chicago area. Um, so by building a lot more affordable housing, building a lot more supportive housing for people like this, you get at homelessness and these other issues. And he talked about uh, converting a lot of these empty schools that were shut down several years ago to housing, um, making the permit process and other things. So it's not that he opposes trying to fight homelessness. He opposes trying to fight it with the increase in the transfer tax. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to, to ask them both right there in person. I am too. It was actually, it was really enjoyable to see, you know, everybody talks about what a stark difference there is between the two men and their platforms. And it was really interesting. I mean, they really answered this question as opposites. Yeah, indeed. Well, we will know more in about a week, won't we? We will. Talk to me about another story you had recently about how Hispanic home ownership in the Chicago area is high compared to the rest of the nation. Here's another interesting comparison of a national number versus a Chicago number. Yeah, I was, I was sort of surprised by this. So the National Association of Realtors does a study of the racial breakdown of home buyers every year. Then what they do when you request it is they pull it for your metro. So they got us the data on Chicago and I was able to compare um, they look at Asian, Black, Hispanic, and white groups and their homeownership rates. For Asian, Black, and white homeowners, we have approximately the same rate of ownership as the nation does, within about two percentage points of the national figure, um, two percentage points higher for Asian and white populations, and two percentage points lower uh, than the nation for the Black population in Chicago as homeowners. About 2%, two percentage points, as I said. For Hispanic homeownership, we're a little more than seven percentage points above the national figure. 50.6% of Hispanic households nationwide own their home, and 58% of Hispanic households in the Chicago area own their home. This is the, the way they look at the Chicago area. It includes some counties in border counties in Indiana and Wisconsin, just to be clear. That's not a metro area I usually study, but that's how they break it down. So uh, about a seven percentage point difference between Chicago and the rest of, of, of uh, the country. So I started asking around, asked um, Latino real estate agents, some of the groups that work for on behalf of the Latino population in Chicago. And what it comes out to be is um, the Hispanic population is most heavily concentrated in big cities on the east and west coasts and in Chicago. Big cities on the East and West Coasts are far more expensive housing-wise than Chicago. So, uh, I mean, they, they mentioned in New York City, I said our rate of Hispanic homeownership is 58% of households own homes. In New York City, 31% of Hispanic households own their homes. And in Los Angeles, 40% of households own their own homes. Um, and that's if you look at the median price of homes, it goes right along with that in New York. $594,000 is the median purchase price of a, of a home. In Los Angeles, $830,000. Those are both considerably above Chicago, where it's $323,000. The point being, it's easier to afford a home. So the home ownership rate for people who one person pointed out, a great, a large number of our Hispanic community is making $15 an hour, uh, but it's more possible to buy a home. 
Uh, it's also possible um, here. Or, I'm sorry. It's also possible in any city, more possible here because of our prices, because a lot of Hispanic households buy with multiple um, incomes. It's not a traditional mother and father, two incomes. It might be some of the kids have incomes. There might be related people, uncles, et cetera. A larger household with more workers um, contributing to the, the total household income to buy. So cheaper here. And oh, and the other thing is that Hispanics tend to be more educated and make more money here than in some of these other cities. So uh, cheaper housing, better educated, and then that extra tool that Hispanics often elsewhere as well as here buy in a group as opposed to just one couple buying means that um, there's a much higher rate of Hispanic homeownership here than in other big cities. I love how you're able to kind of undo that puzzle and unpack that and, and, and figure out why that is, because that's really that's more of a people story than a numbers story. And, and that's so fascinating to me. You know, it totally is, Amy. And, and honestly, that's one of the reasons to go into journalism is that you can ask, you can get to people to ask, the, ask questions like sitting in front of Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. But in this case, going to some experts on uh, Latino housing and income and that sort of thing and saying, hey, why would these numbers be like this? And they can rattle it right off. But of course, I had no idea. So then um, you're able to sort of translate this out to people. And yeah, it is, it's, it's pretty fascinating to think um, that our Hispanic population is, is much more frequently homeowners than in New York and LA. I mean, because of course, homeownership is a way to build generational wealth. Homeownership stabilizes communities, makes people feel rooted. It's, it's, uh, I was pretty interested to find this out. All right. Well, let's move to some particular houses. We've got some really interesting ones. Okay. This is the one I could not wait to ask you about. This is a house that was described as a playgirl party house from the seventies. Talk to me about this. Uh, yeah. I, let's be clear that I did not coin the phrase. The <laughs> seller who a year ago was the buyer is the one who said it looked like a playboy, a playgirl party house to her. So we talked about this almost exactly a year ago. This house is this wild modernist house in Rolling Meadows with all sorts of just wonderful, like pink and blue carpets inside and built-in couches and a pool with a slide from the, an indoor pool with a slide from the second story into the, into the first floor pool. Um, it had been on the market. It got picked up by Zillow Gone Wild. 44,000 people looked at it. One of them was a woman who was moving back from California to Chicago and said, I want that. And she bought it a year ago. She paid uh, $531,000 for it. I spoke to her at the time. She's the one who said it's a playgirl party house. Um, and, and, and it's just a really cool, colorful, unusual place. She oh, also yeah. said it's, uh, it's made of concrete and glass. And she said on the outside, it looks like an evil villain's lair, which I also really love. <laughs> so then a year later, this month, it comes back on the market. I called her and I called her agent. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get around to doing the story fast enough. And the very next day it went under contract. So it had been on the market for quite a while the first time. Um, and, and again, she bought it for 531,000 in February, 2022 in March, 2023, she sold it. Uh, she sold it. She sold it in a day. The sale had, uh, she was asking 584.9. So she was asking about $50,000 more, roughly 10% more than she paid for it a year ago got a buyer in a day. 
It hasn't closed yet, so I don't know the sale price. The real estate agent is ethically bound to withhold that until the deal closes. But considering that somebody came for it in a day, I have a, day, a pretty strong right. feeling it's selling for the, the asking price or something nearby. And it is, and I should say, I'm not the buyer. I wish I were. Um, <laughs> it's so cool. It's a really- It's a fun house. Yeah, it's really wild. It's got all these deck or these multi-layered decks that go out to the uh, outside and a fireplace with sort of benches built around it. It's, it's as 1970s as it could possibly be. It's such a great house. You can see those photos for yourself at chicagobusiness.com. But I'm, I'm confused why she would sell it after just a year. It's such a special, unique house. So she was moving here from California last year, moving back. She has relatives here, had been living in Northern California, fell in love with this house. It's in Rolling Meadows. It's pretty far northwest of the city. And it turned out to be much farther from the things she does downtown and in the city than she really thought it would be. She also, she has a vintage clothing business online and she had thought the house would be a great sort of a photo studio because it, like, it's got all these vintage looks to it. Um, but she said that hasn't really, really worked out. But the primary problem is it's much farther than she thought it was. So, you know, yeah, that's a buyer's remorse. Fair enough. She prices it 10% higher. Doesn't always work out for people that they say, ah, this didn't quite work the way I thought. I'll ask 10% more and it's sold in a day. Right. I mean, she really, she, it's, it's the kind of house where that might happen. It's, it's really a neat house. Well, I hope whoever bought it, I hope they keep in touch with you and uh, maybe let you record a podcast from there. I don't know. Let me come saying. slide down the sliding board. And... <laughs> totally. I've never been to a Playgirl party pad. No, nor have I. All right, let's look at another house. And this is uh, an $8 million Tribune Tower condo. Tell me about this. And I know it's weird because you and I have both worked in that building. Yeah, you know, and it is strange to go up the elevators you used to go up to your old uh, office or newsroom, but those elevators lead to this condo. This is on the 22nd floor of the Tribune Tower. It's in like a primo location because it's a nice condo inside. It's a very nice condo inside. But the, the, the thing about it is the terrace is unbelievable. It's where... Um, employees, when the Tribune was still there, employees used to sit out there and smoke and eat lunch and watch watch uh, the lake. You're So you're in a building on Michigan Avenue, but you see all the way to the lake because of this protected historical corridor known as the Ogden Slip View Corridor. So you're sitting on the 22nd floor. You're surrounded by some of the Gothic elements of the building. You've actually, your terrace is framed by these huge Gothic finials that are standing there carvings. You've got uh, gargoyles of frogs and other things looking down at you. And then- And is a private it's terrace? Pri yeah, to it's this his unit? own. Um, wow. And, the, okay. and one, other, one other condo has the other side of it. So you're not sitting there with a bunch of other people having their lunch. It's your own place. And he's got cooking out there. Um, the, the view is spectacular. And then when you go inside from that terrace, there's what he calls his whiskey room which has green velvet walls, brass trim, a collection of whiskey. So he talked about, you know, this is the bar area. And then you go out to eat here, out here where I'm cooking. Um, I mean, imagine watching the fireworks, sitting inside, have a little whiskey, go outside, start to barbecue. The fireworks come off Navy Pier. Um, it's pretty amazing. He's asking $8 million for it. Uh, the rest of the condo 
is is very nice. Very, it, it's really well done. Um, on the, so that was the west. Uh, sorry, that's the east side of the condo. The west side of the condo is um, overlooking Michigan Avenue. And he talked about how from the primary bedroom you can see the he saw the Green River on on St. Patrick's Day. You see the lights all up Michigan Avenue. Um, it's pretty sweet, but really the sweetest part is that terrace. Yeah. I mean, the whiskey room is pretty cool too. Yeah. With all this kind of green stuff. There's a cool green, I don't know if that's tile or just marble inlay or what, but there's this kind of cool green pattern on the wall. And of course, you know, it's decorated with cool green velvet stuff. So yeah. that doesn't hurt either. That's pretty yeah. sharp. It's not the way it was when it was a, an employee workspace. I was going to say... Very different. I used to use that as a, a, like a code on my calendar. I'd put meetings, I would just call it conference room 22. And everybody knew that meant like, it's a nice day. Let's have a meeting outside. Oh, that's hilarious. I don't know if you saw that in the story, I linked to somebody's Periscope, a Tribune employee's Periscope from yes. years ago. So you could see this is what it used to look like right. when it had like AstroTurf and picnic tables. And here's how fabulous it is now. And it turned out the woman who did that AstroTurf was one of the closest friends of two women who now work here at Cranes. Oh, and interesting. They said, oh, my God. Yeah, which was just <laughs> wild. Allie Brumbach and, and Elizabeth Couch worked with her. And they said, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we were out there on that terrace with her lots of times. That's so funny. I've always said Chicago is the biggest small town you'll ever find. <laughs> yeah, and former Tribune employees is a subset of, of that. Oh, it's its own, like fraternity, sorority, <laughs> people that have worked in that building for sure. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about another big name in Chicago, uh, Leo Burnett. So uh, their former leader has sold their River North condo. Tell me about this. Yeah. Mark Tutzel. He was the executive chairman of Leo Burnett. He's the only person ever to have that title at Leo Burnett other than Leo, Leo Burnett. Burnett himself. Yeah. Leo Burnett died in uh, 1971. This man, Mark Tutzel, took that title in 2006. In between, there's been nobody. Mark Tutzel is from England. He worked for Leo Burnett for 34 years, beginning in England. In about 2001, he moved to Chicago. By 2006, he was worldwide creative officer of Leo Burnett Worldwide and then chairman of the firm. That year that he got that title, he bought a condo in this building on Superior that I really, I really love. I wrote about it when it was new. It was by Metzler Hall. Um, just this wonderful, very, um, very contemporary building without being outrageous or weird. Uh, most of them have sort of a south wall of glass. This one is high enough that from that wall of glass, you're looking at the swimming pool of an apartment building across the street. I mean, you're in River North. You're like in the city, but you're looking at somebody's swimming pool and then at the skyline. Um, so he bought it uh, in 2006 for one, just about $1.5 million. Retired in 2019, put it on the market a little while ago, sold it this week um, for about $1.19 million, which is to say he bought it in 2006, and when he sold it in 2023, he lost about 21% on it, which, as you know, because we have this conversation a lot, is what's happening with a lot of downtown condos. A lot of people selling, we talked just a few weeks ago about the number of people who are selling downtown condos at years ago prices. And he, I mean, he sold for well below what he paid for it in 2006. I wasn't able to reach him. I reached his agent who, who checked in with Tutsal. Tutsal didn't want to talk. The agent didn't want to talk. One of these days, somebody is going to say to me, yeah, I took a loss and here's how that felt. 
And I'm just waiting for my phone to light up with somebody, somebody who will say that. I hope that happens because it's not like wanting to paint anybody badly or say that that's their fault. It's just, I think it's an interesting moment in the market and an interesting moment in sales. And it would be interesting to talk with somebody who, who experienced that. Yeah. And, and unfortunately it has gone on longer than a moment. It's been a couple of several years now and that's upsetting. And to be honest, I have had, when we did the first big story about um, condo prices sagging in the downtown area, I did have a couple of people talking with me then, but um, you know, now that it's been a few years uh, and now that your agent has to say to you, Hey, you know, you're not going to get back the money you put in. I mean, I don't think Mark Tutsel, when he bought this condo in 2006 thought, uh, I'll lose money on this. I assume that virtually everyone who was buying condos in 2006 thought, rightly or wrongly, I'll make some money on this. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, let's move to another house. I think we just talked about a, uh, a Duchessois home, and let's do that again. Yeah, it sold fast. Judy Duchessois, who is the widow of Richard Duchessois, the racetrack executive, uh, we talked just a few weeks ago about her putting her home in Inverness on the market well, it went under contract in four days, and now it has sold. Uh, she sold it for $1.25 million. This is not a downtown condo, but it was sold at a loss. Uh, it was bought in a trust in her name in 2010 for $1.38, and again, sold for $1.25. But it grabbed a buyer in four days. I looked. In Inverness, the average this year is 33 days. So clearly went faster than the market I talked to the agents and they said, well, one of the reasons was pricing. You know, she obviously priced it to get rid of it. She, she wasn't looking for a high number. And so somebody came along and said, yeah, that's priced to the market. I will take it. It's a nice house. It's in Inverness, which some people know is, is a Northwest suburb designed as a golf community originally in the 30s. Big lots, rolling streets. Uh, this house has, uh, there's a pond out back and you own part of it. I can't remember how many homes you share the pond with. But from your house, you're looking at your pond. There was also outdoor cooking. Very nice house. Four days. Yeah. I, in fact, I think we don't, I can't really think of the last time we talked about Inverness other than this house. I haven't written. Yeah. I, I looked. The last time I wrote about a house in Inverness, I didn't, it was before I even worked at Cranes. It was when I worked at Chicago Magazine. So it's, it's been a minute. Like more than nine years ago. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, a house, a 1951 house in Evergreen Park. I got such a kick out of this place. Yeah. I think, it's a neat house. You know, it's these time capsule houses are so interesting. And I'm glad that readers like them because I get to keep writing these stories because if readers said, eh, who cares? I wouldn't get to write the next one. This is a house on Avers in Evergreen Park being sold by the third generation to own it. Um, the family bought it in 1951 and it wasn't finished. There was a builder building it. He died. They bought it, finished the house. So essentially, they've been the only owners since 1951. Uh, and there are all these finishes in it that look like it's, you're, you're back in 1951. The linoleum floor in the rec room, the rec room overall, I mean... If you want to have a reunion show for Happy Days, you've got the set right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, the paneling, the, the flying fish on the wall, the bar, it's right there. Uh, it's a great, and then there are other things like uh, one of my favorite building materials is, many people call it vitrolite, that's one brand, but structural glass, that black painted, back painted glass tile. Two of the bathrooms have that. One is sort of a mint green and one is black. It's really a 40s material, but the house is from the early 50s, so not really sure. It's a 30s and 40s material. So, you know, they may have 
put it in, having seen it in another home, don't know. Um, just a really, a really great house. And there's one feature that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. It's a ranch house and it has clear story windows, clear story windows. Uh, like if you picture the roof of a church and then there are windows pushed right up against the roof line up above, um, up above the, the main windows to bring in light. This has glass block clear story windows, a ranch house. I haven't seen it before. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist anywhere. This was the first time I saw it. And I thought, why don't we build everything with these? Yeah, right. It looked so good. And it so, you know, basically uh, parents owned it, sold it to their son. He owned it for a few decades, has died. And his, the next generation is selling it. They didn't want to talk to me, but, you know, the house talked to me. The house, the house like. The house spoke. You. Yeah. I wish I could do like a, a 1950s. Shabip shaboom kind of song, but I'm <laughs> I'm not prepared. But that the house really sang to me. Oh sure, I mean, there's a photo on the story. There are many photos on the story that are very cool, and everyone should go check them out. But this, there is the stove in this kitchen. First of all, the kitchen is in such amazing shape. Yeah, and there's the stove and this kind of cool copper color tile backsplash behind it that looks. It's just very cool looking, and it's so pristine looking. Yeah. And what's so funny about that is that's actually sort of a mix of eras because the stove is that avocado green mm -hmm. that people were doing in the 70s. So at some point, they had to replace their 1950s stove. They kept their 1950s tile and cabinets, and it looks with a 1970s stove tucked in, and it looks perfect. I mean, it looks perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah that kitchen is, is so cool. And did you notice, Amy, the, the strange, weird connection this house has? To the Unabomber. To Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And I want to say, totally innocent. There's no there's no blemish on this house because of the Unabomber. So again, this house was in the hands of three generations. That middle generation uh, is a man who went to school with Ted Kaczynski when he was called Teddy Kaczynski. Um, Teddy Kaczynski played trombone in the band, wanted to be a NASA. Um, and then he grows up to become the Unabomber and be just a terrible depraved person but when he was arrested and every in the 90s and everybody was fascinated with how did this guy become the unabomber reporters descend on evergreen park again this family has lived in that house for a very long time ted kaczynski grew up a few blocks away i don't know how they found this family but the man talked about yeah ted kaczynski was just like everybody else he played the trombone he wanted to be an or not he wanted to be an astronaut he wanted to be in the space program may have wanted to be an engineer. Um, and so he was in, when you look back, he was in the New York Times, he was in the Washington Post, he was in the Chicago Tribune talking about Ted Kaczynski, which of course has no bearing on the value of the house. He was just being interviewed. I don't want anybody to think, I think that's a black mark. He was just a, a neighborhood kid, yeah. Who happened to be there because the family has owned the house for 72 years, or at that point less, but still. Right. That's so interesting, though, to have just, um, you know, that that kind of footnote of history attached to this house in that way. That's so interesting. All right. Well, we have run out of houses, so <laughs> we must we must wrap it up. Oh, we never run out of houses, Amy. There are 20. There are a lot more coming on the <laughs> There's market. There's so many. And we will talk about them this time next week. Always a pleasure, Dennis. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the Chicago Park District looks for outside help to put its sex abuse scandal and maybe also the Chicago Bears in the rear view. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
Crane's Audio Studio presents Four Star Stories, The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, a four-part series reported by Albie Galoon. This is a story about second and third chances. It's about a brash dealmaker who helped the feds convict a Chicago alderman in Tony Resco, a fundraiser for former Governor Rod Blagojevich. He's the kind of guy where lawyers say, man, if this guy flew straight, he would really be something. John Thomas, a real estate investor who worked undercover for the FBI, has been called a serial con man by federal prosecutors. He says he changed his ways after a trip to prison. But has he? Some people just have the grift in them. They can't get it out of them. They were born with it. I mean, they were stealing penny candies when they were, you know, six years old. The Felonious Adventures series is produced by Crane's Audio Studio as part of Four Star Stories, Crane's ongoing effort to tell the story of Chicago's past, present, and future through the voices of the people who live and work here. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to hear The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, available now. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. One of the central figures in the so-called ComEd 4 trial, former Commonwealth Edison Senior Vice President Fidel Marquez took the stand on Monday and laid out just how routine the utilities practice was of hiring former State House Speaker Michael Madigan's associates at Madigan's request. Well, if you look at the the contract, it's Jay Doherty and Associates, and I forget the amount, Mike, but it's a monthly amount equal to a yearly amount. And it's a pretty hefty amount. And Marquez's part as a government mole took center stage in the trial Tuesday as well, with jurors being shown videos he took surreptitiously of conversations with defendants, discussing how to get the then-new CEO to sign off on a lobbying contract funneling cash to associates of Madigan's. You know, you, you come up with a number, and he came up with a number, and that's how it got into the 20000 Okay. And, it, and we just spread it over time. And then came along, again, this is just you and me talking, I don't even know who else knows this. Uh, John Hooker called, he said, Jay, I got a sub for you. Uh, uh, you know, a sub uh, a sub, subcontractor. A sub, a subcontractor. Crane Steve Daniels, who's covering the trial, reported that over the course of the two days, emails, contracts, and videos were shared with jurors tied to funneling cash on a monthly basis, usually $4,500 or $5,000, to people who were key to Madigan's political operation based in the 13th Ward on Chicago's southwest side. Also captured was Madigan himself demonstrating how familiar he was with the details of ComEd's arrangements. Hi, Speaker. Yeah, Mike. Thanks for calling me back. Yeah. Uh, Speaker, you can call Mike Zulewski and say that they're going to get in touch with him. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and we want to get this done before Ann leaves June mm-hmm. 1. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you have his telephone? Uh, Mike, I do, yes. You, you, you want me to call him? No, no. I mean, you've got the number to call. Yeah, you want me to call him? No. Well, you, I think you said that somebody's going to reach out for him, right? Right. Yeah. All right. And will it be somebody from ComEd or from Jay Doherty? It'll be from Jay Doherty. Jay Doherty. Okay. I'll tell him. Okay. Thank you. Take yes, care. sir. Bye-bye. Bye. 
In an intercepted call on May 16th of 2018, in which ComEd lobbyist Michael McLean was briefing Madigan on a lobbying subcontract in the works, McLean told Madigan, quote, you can call Mike Saluski and say they'll get in touch with him. Madigan, Marquez testified, quote, wanted to be the one to deliver the good news. Zaluski, who was just leaving his post as the 23rd Ward Alderman, hadn't even been told yet of his $5,000 a month paycheck coming via ComEd lobbyist Jay Doherty, according to testimony from Marquez. Unprompted, Madigan asked McLean on the phone if it would be someone from ComEd or Jay Doherty making the call to Zaluski and was told it would be Doherty. Daniels further noted in reporting that also according to Marquez's testimony, such was the House Speaker's familiarity with how ComEd paid his associates, with no work expected in return. Captured on camera in one video was Marquez meeting with ComEd's lead outside lobbyist Michael McLean and Jay Doherty to ask them how to get Dominguez to sign off on something that Promajore routinely renewed. In another, McLean advised Marquez, quote, I would say to you, don't do anything in writing. McLean offered to meet with Dominguez himself to explain how the payments were important to keeping in Madigan's good graces. Daniels also noted in reporting that the arrangements in which people important to Madigan were provided monthly checks through ComEd's contract lobbyists are a linchpin of the case against McLean, Doherty, former ComEd CEO Anne Promajore, and former ComEd lobbyist John Hooker. Marquez testified that, in return, ComEd stayed on the Speaker's good side, which was critical to the success of its legislative agenda in Springfield. He testified that ComEd's relationship with Madigan was poor throughout much of the 2000s due to some history in which Madigan believed that the utility had misled him in a push for a bill, which ultimately failed. Marquez testified, quote, Efforts had to be made to improve the relationship with Mike Madigan. He continued by saying, if that relationship did not improve, the consequence would have been we would have difficulty passing legislation, if at all. As Daniels previously reported, Marquez agreed in early 2019 to become a cooperating witness in the federal probe of Madigan and ComEd and wore a wire for four months to help make the case. He pleaded guilty to conspiracy and is likely to escape jail time for a crime that carries a maximum penalty of five years in prison. Find more reporting from Steve Daniels about the ComEd trial, including transcripts and video, at chicagobusiness.com. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that Deerfield-based Walgreens Boots Alliance is seeing its multi-billion dollar investments into healthcare delivery pay off as the segment grows following the opening of more locations and new partnerships with insurers. The company, which now owns or has heavily invested in several healthcare delivery companies like Village MD, Summit Health City MD, and CareCentrix, reported Tuesday morning that fiscal second quarter sales in its healthcare segment more than tripled from a year prior to $1.6 billion. Davis noted that the gross profit for the segment was $32 million, but Walgreens still posted a $159 million adjusted operating loss, which the company said stems from investing in expansion. Even still, Walgreens has said it expects its healthcare segment to be profitable by fiscal 2024. Davis also noted that Walgreens also announced that it signed Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey as its fourth payer partner for Walgreens Health, a move that can help Walgreens funnel more patients into its clinics and stores and compete with competitors like CVS Health. 
But despite gains in the health care segment, Davis also reported that the unit remains Walgreens' smallest, well behind the company's international and retail pharmacy segments. After previously reducing store hours due to staffing shortages, management said Tuesday morning that Walgreens has returned about 500 stores to normal pharmacy operating hours after working to address an industry-wide pharmacist labor shortage. However, about 1,900 stores were still operating at reduced hours at the end of Walgreens' second quarter. Led by its retail pharmacy segment, Walgreens grew company-wide sales 3% to $34 billion in the quarter that ended February 28th. But profits sagged due to lower demand for COVID-19 vaccines and tests, according to Walgreens CEO Roz Brewer. The company reported profits dropping 20% to $703 million in the second quarter, compared to a year earlier. But aside from lower demand for COVID-related care, Davis also pointed out that industry analysts are also concerned that growing competition will continue to put pressure on Walgreens' pharmacy business. The James Beard Award Foundation has narrowed the list of finalists for its 2023 awards, and five Chicago names have risen to the top. Crane's Ali Marotti reported that Obelix was nominated for Best New Restaurant, Damar Brown of Virtue in Hyde Park was nominated for Emerging Chef, and Sepia was nominated for Outstanding Hospitality. Chicago has two nominees in the Best Chef in the Great Lakes Region category, Tim Flores and Jeannie Kwan at Kasama, and Diana Davila at Mitokaya Antojeria. The finalists were narrowed down from a group of semi-finalists named in January, when 11 Chicago restaurants and one from downstate made the cut. The winners will be announced at a June event in Chicago. Marathi noted in reporting that for years, Chicago has dominated the best chef in the Great Lakes region category, which covers Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. Wife-husband duo Beverly Kim and Johnny Clark of Parachute in Avondale won in 2019. Abraham Conlin of Fat Rice in Logan Square won in 2018. Monteverde chef Sarah Gruenberg won in 2017. And Curtis Duffy, then of fine dining restaurant Grace, won in 2016. And Marathi also noted this was the category Virtue's Eric Williams won last year, the only award a Chicago chef brought home in 2022. The Beard Awards are an event often called the Oscars of the restaurant world. They were first held in Chicago in 2015 and are set to stick around here through 2027. Last year, nine Chicago chefs, bars, and restaurants were finalists. That ceremony marked a return of pre-pandemic traditions around the awards, too. They were held at the Lyric Opera of Chicago after a tumultuous two years for the restaurant sector and were presented in their typical form for the first time since 2019. That year, Chicago's restaurant industry won four James Beard Awards, and the year before, just one. Marathi also reported that the James Beard Foundation executives said they overhauled the awards since before the pandemic and shifted to focusing on chefs and restaurants that highlight their communities and are committed to diversity and equity. Officials have said they will continue that emphasis this year as well. The Chicago Park District, struggling to recover from a sex abuse scandal and ousting of its CEO, is looking for some professional outside help to look at how it does business, announcing that it's seeking one or more consultants to help it develop and support a new strategic plan. 
CEO Rosa Escareño said in a statement, quote, Chicago parks are critical to the overall health and vitality of our city and millions of families, residents and visitors and look to provide vital services and experiences that improve their quality of life. Continuing by saying, quote, this strategic plan will ensure we are prepared to meet the needs of our patrons well into the future. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines noted in reporting that the most obvious need is to ensure that the district finally has put behind it a scandal in which teens who worked as lifeguards were harassed and sometimes forced to engage in sexual activity. The events and related matters led to the ousting of then-Parks boss Mike Kelly, who was forced out by Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Hines also noted that it appears, however, that the consultant will have that as well as other things on their plate. According to the district's request for proposals, whoever is hired will also help craft a three to five year strategic plan to review what services the district should provide and how to pay for them. Landscaping standards, relations with community groups, and the role that private fundraising should play in district operations. Hines also noted in reporting that the request also comes as the district braces for the loss of its biggest tenant, the Chicago Bears, which show every sign of decamping Soldier Field for suburban Arlington Heights and as the city also prepares to elect a new mayor in the coming days, one who may well have strong views on what the district is and is not doing correctly. Responses to the request for proposal are due April 28th. The district last released a master plan in 2012. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.